This evening, I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. Dorn, will you start the camera? Do you mind? Thank you. Deuteronomy 29, we continue. A few chapters left in this book, written by Moses. It's the last of the books in which he penned prior to his death. Words written by a man who knows his days are numbered. What do you say? He continues to impress upon the people. as being directed by the Holy Spirit how they are to live as those covenant people of God who are called to inhabit the promised land. I'll read the entirety of chapter 29. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. And I have led you forty years in the wilderness Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, and we conquered them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, to the Gadites, into the half-tribe of Manasseh. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you might prosper in all that you do. And, I'm sorry, all of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp, and from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today, that he may establish you today as a people for himself and that he may be be God to you, just as he has spoken to you and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I make this covenant and this oath, Not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which you passed by and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a root of bitterness or wormwood. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be included. But the sober, the Lord would not spare him, but or for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man, and every curse that is written in this book would settle on him. 
And the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law, so that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land would say when they see the plagues of that land and the sickness which the Lord has laid on it, the whole land is brimstone, salt, and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. All nations would say, why has the Lord done so to this land? Why does the heat of this great anger, or what does it mean? Then people would say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods that they did not know and that he had not given to them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against this land to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted from their land in anger, in wrath, and in great indignation, and cast them into another land as it is this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, as we come to your word again this day, we have perhaps had our minds filled. Much has been said in worship, in Sunday school, around tables. Oh, Lord, give us attention for a little while longer this day. Oh, Lord, would you capture our hearts and our minds that we might see glorious things in your word. And be transformed by it, we pray in your name. Amen. I wrote in the sermon synopsis a little vignette of what it might have been like to be one, although these people here in the book of Deuteronomy were not there, to be one who walked on the dry land. Can you imagine what you would see? In that sort of makeshift aquarium, if you've been to one, walls of glass, the waters held back, 1.6 million people walking across the Red Sea only to get through safely, baptized, set apart for worship unto the Lord, turning and seeing the Egyptian army following, subsequently the waters covering and destroying them. You go to the mountain, you see lightning, and you hear thunder. You come to the edge of it, and the leaders of Israel say, thus far and no farther. You see Moses go up on the mountain. You see him come down, his face shining, his hair grayed. Gray hair's no thing to be ashamed of. And you hear the words of God spoken through the prophet Moses taste that sweet water, that water that was once bitter. You eat bread that came from nowhere, quail that came from nowhere. And yet when you get to the promised land and God says, I'm going to give it to you, you say, I don't think that's possible. Such were the hearts of the first generation who died in the wilderness. Now Moses was there for it all. Joshua, Caleb, They were there for it all. And if you can imagine 
the leader of Israel, seeing another generation, and as Moses said time and again, he's not too optimistic about the odds. And not just because he was a pessimist, but because he is told by the Lord that despite the fact that the nation of Israel saw all of these mighty deeds, they were not given the ability to see them for what they were and possess faith in response to them. A law given to a people with ears that cannot hear and eyes that cannot see is of no use except unto condemnation. But for those who do see and do hear, it is the means of directing our lives. It reveals to us how God would have us go. Now, what I am saying to you tonight from Deuteronomy chapter 29 is that as God enters into covenant to his or with his visible church, he gives to the entirety of the visible church the law. Here is how you ought to live. This is what you ought to believe. But even in the context of the visible church, there will be those who do not see, who do not hear, and there will be those who do. As those who do, I pray by God's grace, you will hear what God has to say this evening. Two points that I want to make as it relates to Deuteronomy 29 and this ceremony of sorts of covenant renewal. Number one, what God has done and for whom. What God has done and for whom. And then second, the charge and the warning. The charge and the warning. Let's look at the first point. What God has done and for whom. Now, what has God done? The first part of this chapter opens with, these are the words of the covenant which the Lord, that is Yahweh, commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel. In the land of Moab. Now this is the second giving of the law. The second cutting of the covenant. This time in Moab. Previously in Horeb where Mount Sinai was. Exodus chapter 20. Moses calls all of Israel together. This is the second generation. Only Joshua and Caleb and Moses are living. Everyone else has died. None of these people passed on the Red Sea or through the Red Sea. They only know it secondhand, as their parents told them. And as Moses meets with them, he says this, Look at all of what the Lord has done for you. Now Moses called all of Israel and said to them, You have seen. Well, They actually didn't see what happened to Egypt. So how have they seen? The same way that your kids see. God manifests his presence, his power, his mighty acts through the retelling of the generations that have come before. This is how we see. We see through the word revealed to us. You have seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And the trials, the conquering of the kings that came out. But look at verse 4. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. Now we'll focus on that for a moment. But all covenant renewal ceremonies begin with God getting to say the first thing. If you were to listen to any State of the Union address, 
all of those addresses begin with how good things have gone recently. Sometimes it's made up. Sometimes it's fact. But you can't get up there as the President of the United States and stand before your people and say nothing has happened or that only bad things have happened. You have to talk about the good things. God is recounting as a good king, as a faithful and sovereign deliverer, all of his faithfulness to Israel. This is what I have done for you. Now, what ought that do to the heart of one who loves God? It stirs your affections. But for those who don't care, it just passes them by. It's just noise. And there are some there who hear these things and they don't hear it. The sound waves hit their ears, but their hearts are not stirred by it. Now, God has delivered Israel. This is the first part of covenant renewal. God relates his covenant mercies. And then he relates those with whom he has entered into covenant with. Look at verse 10. All of you stand today before the Lord your God. Leaders, elders, officers, men, children, wives, sojourners. The one who cuts your wood. Your servants. So that everybody here has entered into the covenant. This is why we baptize infants. Because they're in the covenant. We're saying our children don't go somewhere else when God is speaking to us. They bear the sign of those to whom God is speaking. They bear the sign of the visible church. Children, wives, elders, high and low, rich and poor, strangers. All of these people are invited. And not just those people. Look at verse 14. I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone. That's everybody who there is listening. But the generations that will come. With him who stands here. As well as with him who is not here. And not just future generations. Those who will be born. The next generation. But God enters into covenant with Israel and has done so in such a way that all of the nations whom Israel has interacted with can see it. Egypt knows not to mess with Israel. Sion and Og knew, they learned, don't mess with Yahweh and his people. Now, if Israel does not keep covenant, those nations will know something else. They will see the shame that is heaped up upon Israel. But for now, God continues in his sovereign mercy to preserve and to cleanse, to heal, to uphold his covenant people. And God wants all of Israel to know this. He wants the nations to know it, that there is no people like God's people. He has delivered Israel, and he wants all of Israel and all the earth to know it. But the problem is this. Membership in the visible church, membership in the nation of Israel, does not guarantee faith. 
God demands allegiance from all those who are there. In the same way as you sit here and the preaching of the word is done and you hear it, not all who hear the preaching of God's word, it's call to repentance, it's warnings if you do not, it's offer of salvation, hear it and respond in a way that honors God. And this is actually one of the points of preaching. It is to heap up judgment and it is to pour out grace. And so oftentimes the question that we have as arbiters of justice, right? That's what we are. That's who we, no, we're terrible at that. The world wants to make us social justice warriors, right? They want us to be arbiters of goodness and truth. The problem is they want us to do so by a standard that is ever-shifting in accordance with whoever is in power. What God wants us to do is establish our homes, our churches, our societies upon the unchanging word of God. To be guided and led by his revelation as the great source of understanding. Now, there are many nations, there are many tribes, there are many tongues who have never read Deuteronomy 29. In fact, there are many churches who've never read or heard Deuteronomy 29 preached. There are many pastors like me who still struggle with, what's the point of Deuteronomy 29? How are we to live in light of these truths? How are we to reconcile this? God says to everyone whom he has ever made, you worship me, you obey me, and yet does not grant them the capacity to obey or to know him in a way that is saving. And we say, ha, 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 ha. It's the great moral dilemma. We will bring God and we will charge him with this crime. He asks us to do something that we cannot do. And so what we endeavor to do is give God an out either by being unbiblical in the way in which we talk about the scriptures and how they apply to our lives or we twist them in such a way that we try to make God in our own image so that those who have no desire to actually worship him, he may be palatable palatable to them. We make him like us, thinking that we are the true arbiters of justice. So how can we reconcile a God who demands allegiance from all men, especially those who've heard his word? You must obey You must see and you must hear in such a fashion in which faith is prompted. But faith is what? It is not of our own doing. It is not a work. It is a gift. When Abraham believed, it was not a work. It was a gift. So here is about as far as we can go. Look at verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but those things which are revealed belong to us. There is a point in our lives where we must say, we're not sure why God operates the way that he does. But what is necessary for us is known because it has been revealed to us. We leave to God the responsibility to give us eyes to see 
ears to hear, hearts to believe. We leave to God the responsibility, because we cannot do it, that very thing. But what we can do is when we hear, when we see, when we perceive, we do what God has commanded. This is the great dilemma between a sinful people that want a God who's not really just. He just gives us what we want. If we were, in fact, to fashion God, what kind of God would we fashion? Here's how we would fashion God in our own image. A God who holds others to a standard that we ourselves do not wish to be held. A fickle God, not a righteous God, a sort of conglomeration of modern and postmodern. We want other people to obey the law that we want to get an out for disobeying. Children, the great indication of this is when your parents confront you for doing something and your response isn't, I'm sorry, Dad, but Timmy does it. And you begin to relativize. You begin to create an excuse But when God comes to us and he reveals to us his word, what he desires us for us to do is to take his revelation, the law and the gospel, the law and the altar, and look to our children and our children's children. And we say to them, without the, the capacity, the ability to change their hearts, this is who God calls you to be. And then guess what? We get to leave to God, thank goodness, the role of transformation, that responsibility and power. But what God has given to us is his word and the call to believe. And Deuteronomy 29, as a chapter, as this section on covenant renewal, all covenant renewal must consist of specific particular words. You cannot have covenant renewal without an expression of God's faithfulness, God's call to proclaim it to all generations in the sight of all nations, lest we be cast off. Which is why we get together every Sunday. (laughs) We get together for covenant renewal. Because God has left it to us, that responsibility in hopes that what he will do through his word as it is proclaimed and impressed upon our hearts is to make us new. And so in light of this calling, secondly, there is a charge and there is a warning. Beginning in verse 16. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt, that we saw and came through the nations which we passed by, and you saw their abominations. You saw all of these things. God says, verse 19, And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart. God has dealt with a people who in the face of clear, consistent revelation have said, I'm going to, as Frank Sinatra saying, do it my way. I'll follow the dictates of my own heart. That's Disney, right? Follow your heart. 
as long as it's approved by the group in power, right? And right now what we're seeing is utter and absolute chaos. And again, it's not just Disney. It's the whole Western world. Just follow your heart. And as God is bringing Israel to this place, what he is saying to them is this, you need to follow my heart. And my heart, my desire for you is that I am jealous for your affections. Look at what I have done. Be stirred in light of those things. Recount those things to each other and to the nations. This is how you will keep covenant. Because the alternative is what? You go your own way. Now, the other day uh, in my Bible survey class... We were moving through Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and we were talking about creation and the days of creation. And like any good Presbyterian Reformed OPC pastor, I spent a little bit of time on the days of creation in the fourth commandment and the connection between how God created and then rested. And God calls us to labor and rest. What then is fitting for the Lord's day? And I love polling Sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, because you get very honest answers. And I got more insight into the lives of their families than I probably should have gotten. <laughs> and their parents would probably be a little bit disappointed. But one of the things that was said by one of these students was My cousin says, whatever makes you happy is what you should do on Sunday. And I said, well, what if sinning makes you happy? Oh. Because they, in their innocence, were thinking good things should make you happy. And I said, well, we can go to the book of Isaiah. And the very thing that God charges Israel with is that they what? Followed the dictates of their heart. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. Calvin rightly calls our hearts idol factories. That we are influenced by unholy desires. Even Christians are. And so to say, I shall have peace, even though I follow the dictates of my heart, is like a drunkard being included with the sober. Can you imagine? Everybody's just standing there and then you have this guy sort of. You can spot them a mile away. They're not covenant keepers. They're not sober. They're not thinking correctly. For you to say, I will do what I wish, is antithetical to covenant faithfulness. What is covenant faithfulness? Lord, let the desires of my heart be dictated by the content of your word. And here's the good news. You will spend your whole life, you will live and you will die endeavoring to keep that. It's difficult. It's a lifetime process. We call it sanctification. God longs to conform you after the pattern of his righteous will. And it requires suffering, it requires pain. It is God at times revealing to us the worthless idols of our hearts so that we might not follow our heart's dictates. 
And so those of you with eyes and ears, those of you with eyes in your head and ears in your head, those of you who even now have professed to know and love Christ, who are members of the visible church, do not think for a moment that you can say, because I'm a member of this body, I have leeway, I have freedom to live according to the dictates of my heart, but to follow what God has said. Don't be concerned with the hidden things. Don't think that you can somehow worm your way out of the call to holiness because you don't get to see the things that God sees. You see, what sinful men do is they say this, ha, 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 I have discovered an injustice with God. Therefore, I don't have to obey him. Kids, it's the same with you. Mom, dad, you were mean to me one time, so I'm justified in rebelling against you. Okay, fine. Go along. We'll see how long that lasts. But even then, a child is not justified in their rebellion. Why? Well, because they've violated the fifth commandment. But the reason you say that this particular king, president, man, woman in leadership, because they, are, they have invalidated themselves from authority because we don't like the way they lead. And so God is already anticipating... He is already anticipating the kinds of excuses that are made by those who do not see and do not hear. We don't like what you've told us, and we don't like what you've withheld from us. That God will not. And there are things that God cannot. In fact, Job learned this lesson. In fact, Job stands in contrast to all of those who would inevitably violate the terms of the covenant. When God reminds Job that there are secret things that belong to him, but there are certain things that are revealed to men, Job rests contentedly in the mystery of God's providence. It's not easy. It isn't easy. Because we are perpetually those who ask, why this way? But God has given it to us to follow those things that are clearly revealed. And the consequences of violating the terms, as I have said already, that there is a charge to keep it, and there is also a warning. When the church acts like the world... They get heaped in. They get included with the world. That is what verses 23 through 28 are. It is the fall of the people of God. You go back to the place from which you were delivered. That is the alternative. If you wish to follow the dictates of your heart, welcome. Egypt has a house for you. Sodom has already prepared an apartment for you to live in. And so what then is the answer? It is to fear God and keep his commands. It is to trust in him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
It is to love him and love your neighbor as yourself. It is to accept the terms of the covenant as they have been revealed and to walk faithfully. This is how the church will exalt the name of Christ and this is how Christ will exalt the name of the church. Not by following the dictates of her heart, but by walking in faithfulness with God. And so what does Deuteronomy 29 teach us then? That we are to, well, here it is, that we may do all the words of this law. How are we to do them? By worshiping God as God, by understanding what God has given us to do, and to live as children for his glory. Let's pray.